Well, this evening is so much about the cross. Uh, we wear crosses around our, our necks. Um, they are oftentimes placed as signs and symbols on buildings. This one, right out through that wall. Uh, you can take a tour, a walking tour, through no few cemeteries, and of course, what do you see? Crosses and crosses upon more crosses. Um, depicted, this, the scenes that we've been reading here over the last few minutes, depicted in countless works of art all through the ages. The theme of, of so many songs, some of which, just a sampling of which we have sung here tonight, and I was even thinking about this this afternoon, uh, this, this little question nagging in my brain. How many other individuals in the history of the world do we annually recognize their death? And a gruesome one at that, not, not even just a passing and a mark of that kind, but an execution and a horrific one at that. So, if this is all about the cross and, and Jesus' sacrifice on that cross. And so, it might behoove us for a few minutes here to consider why is it important? Why is it so significant? It seems to be predominant. Why is it significant? Why is it so important? It's, it's clearly more than just a symbol, at least it ought to be, what happened with the cross? What was accomplished with the cross? What, what was it? That's where I'd like to go together for just a few minutes here. But we really should pray before we go any further. Uh, so let's, let's do that now. Lord Jesus, thank You for these minutes that we have here on this Friday evening. And we ask that You would really, really drive home into our hearts the solemnity of that Friday and that moment and why, why, what did it have to do with us? Why? Oh, would you press that into our hearts, we ask in your name, amen. I'm sure no few of you are familiar with the story, the play, the musical, the books by Victor Hugo, Les Miserables. I want to take you back to a particular scene. It's probably the most well-recounted scene in the entire plot line, right? So this is just kind of a little backdrop. So after serving 19 years of hard labor, Jean Valjean has become a hardened, bitter man. Now, upon release from prison, he finds it impossible, given the circumstances, to find work, to find shelter. Uh, the paper that he is required to show tells everyone that he is an ex-convict. He is a prisoner on parole, and no one wants anything to do with him. Finally, a kind bishop takes pity on him and uh, has mercy, takes him in, offering him food and a place to stay. Okay. Jean Valjean then betrays the bishop's trust. Uh, he steals in the middle of the night some of the family silver, some of the heirlooms, 
uh, and uh, is quickly caught as he goes out into the, to the streets and trying to escape and make way. He's caught by some constables. The constables bring him back to the bishop's house. Things are looking pretty bad for Valjean at this point because it was like, you know, he already had in essence, well, I'm going to say almost four, five, six strikes against him. This is it. It seems that uh, he's done. And the bishop, of course, has the opportunity for, to charge him for this act of betrayal and have him in prison likely for the rest of his life. But this is what the bishop says instead. And I think this is from one of the films, uh, this line. So here you are. I'm delighted to see you. Had you forgotten the candlesticks as well? They're silver like the rest and worth a good 200 francs. Did you forget to take them? The constables, you may remember if you've seen the film, the musical, you're familiar with the story. The constables are just flustered. They don't understand what's going on. Uh, the bishop says, here, have some wine. Go have some lunch, a snack, whatever it is. After they leave, the bishop then speaks to Valjean very directly. And this is what he says. Jean Valjean, my brother, you, are no, long, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I have bought your soul. I have ransomed you from fear and hatred, and now I give you back to God. Now, I don't want to get into the nuances precisely of the theology there. We don't, don't do that. Get the big picture here. Get the big picture here with what's going on. And Valjean Valjean is a changed man. He knows what he deserved, where he was. He knows indeed that he has been ransomed, he has been redeemed, he has been set free, and a free man he is indeed. Well, back to the cross. What happened at the cross? What was accomplished for you, for me? Friends, we are ransomed. We have been ransomed. We have been redeemed. We have been set free. Just put it this as simply as I can. Christ died for us, and now we are free. It's as simple as that. Christ died for us, and now we are free. Why the cross? That's what it's about. Now, how do we see this? I want to take you to two places. The first may surprise you. The second's already been alluded to in the readings. The first is to an ancient ceremony, and the second is to a prisoner's experience. So the ancient ceremony, uh, we're going to go to Leviticus chapter 16. No, we did not read that earlier, but we are about to. Leviticus chapter 16, and the ceremony of the goats in the midst of the Day of Atonement. The sacrificial imagery is so good. It's so good, so rich here for us to get our, our minds and our hearts around and for it to get into our minds and hearts as well. So the Day of Atonement, let me, let me set uh, the, well, we probably should read the text first. Let's do that. Let's read Leviticus 16, starting in verse 15, and then reading on through... Um, Verse 22, Leviticus chapter 16, verses 15 through 22. Then he, this is Aaron, the high priest, he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because... 
of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do to the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanliness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of the atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness." What on earth is going on there? Well, again, the question before the house is, why the cross? So the Day of Atonement, what's going on here? It's an, it's an annual event, the purpose of which was to help the people of Israel understand that their daily, uh, weekly, monthly sacrifices were not enough to atone for their sin. And so once a year, on one day, the Day of Atonement... Uh, the atoning blood was brought into the Holy of Holies, in essence, God's throne room, by the high priest as the representative of the people. The high priest that one day would take off all of, all of his normal priestly vestments and would go in just wearing a white linen um, cloth or, or, or robe. As I read, he would take the blood of the bull and sprinkle it there upon the mercy seat, upon the top of the Ark of the Covenant, and before, right there in front of the Ark as well, as a sin offering for himself and the whole priesthood. And then came the two goats. Lots were cast for the two of them, and uh, one was, you'll call, I'll call this the sacrificial goat, and the other was what William Tyndale he invented this term, you may have heard it, the scapegoat, okay? So you have the sacrificial goat on the one hand, and that one was killed as a sin offering for the people, and, and its blood was done like with the bull, sprinkled upon the mercy seat upon the top of the Ark of the Covenant and before it as well, um, and then came the, uh, the scapegoat. So physical, right? So visceral. The people, this is year after year after year after year, this point being made. So then the priest takes his hands and lays them upon the head of this goat and confesses the sins of the people. And the idea here is it's a symbolic transferal of the sins of the people upon the goat that is then led away out into the wilderness never to be seen again. Never to be seen again. You get the imagery here. What is this telling us? What was it meant to tell them? And what is the picture 
and the sense of anticipation that it is meant to build over the course, again, year after year after year after year, the seriousness of sin. Several things. I want to start with that. The seriousness of sin. How offensive, how grave it is in the sight of a holy God that it cannot simply be overlooked. It has to be dealt with. The seriousness of our sin and the need for a substitute. Do you see how this is pointing forward over the course of centuries? The seriousness of our sin and the need for a substitute. Okay, well, that's the sacrificial goat. Now here's the scapegoat. The scapegoat is pointing us uh, to, the again, not just the need of a substitute, but, but actually having it, the results of it. Justice has been satisfied. Our sins have been removed. Justice has been satisfied. The sins have been removed. As you see the tail of that goat being led out of the camp, just going to be that visceral, that physical, right? It's a physical image, right? As you see the guy leading the goat out of the camp, what is it meant to be a reminder of? What is it meant to be a picture of? Your sins are done, they've been removed. Never to be seen again. It's why the prophets elsewhere speak of. Your sins has been removed from my sight as far as the east is from the west. Your sins are hidden behind God's back, blotted from the record to be remembered no more, thrown into the very depths of the sea. Those are all images that the prophets use to describe what's going on here at the Day of Atonement with these two goats. Well, okay. You may be wondering, what does that have to do with Good Friday and what we've read? Well, okay, this is again picturing everything that Jesus was doing. This is why the cross, you see it pictured in another way with a living human being who was on site. The first person of whom we can say Jesus took his cross. We have his name, Barabbas. Barabbas. Let me take you to Mark chapter 15. Now, this is not one of the texts we read. It just gives some more uh, light onto the subject, um, which is, is just very helpful here. Mark 15, verses 6 through 15. Now, at the feast, he, this is Pilate, at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Do you see the goats here? The sacrificial goat and the scapegoat the need for a substitute, and the effect of the substitute. So let's talk about Barabbas here. What do we know about this man? Mark and Luke 
in their accounts say that he was in prison for an insurrection and committing murder. John says he was a robber. Matthew says he was a notorious prisoner. This is not a model citizen. It's quite possible that the two dudes crucified to Jesus' left and right were friends and neighbors of Barabbas, perhaps accomplices. We don't know, but it's quite likely given the timing of all this. Why is he spared? The man is sitting there in a jail cell awaiting execution. Well, we know that there was a tradition at the time. The Pascal pardon is what it was known as, where it was said here a couple of times uh, the prisoner could be set free. It was a tradition. Pilate apparently was the one that set it in motion. It was not a long-standing tradition, but it was certainly something that the, uh, the people well knew about. And Pilate assumes foolishly, erroneously, naively, he's trying to get out from underneath this, the horns of this dilemma that he's find, found himself in. And he's assuming that he can finally get Jesus released, which is actually what he wants to do. He figures he can get Jesus released by appealing to this tradition, but he's, he's underestimated the craftiness and hate of the religious authorities who have a completely different plan in mind. We read in Mark's account, they stir up the crowd. Okay, that's what we know of Barabbas. Now, reading between the lines, let's infer a little bit, and let's imagine just a little bit this man's experience. He's sitting on death row. We don't know how many days. Likely, he doesn't have a date. All he knows is he gets up every morning and he's thinking, this could be it. I don't know. He gets up that day. He's sitting on death row. It could be any day. Any day could be his last. He has no rights. No rights. He has no hope of appeal. There's no state-granted attorney or anything like that in that system. He likely knows that he deserves what's coming to him, given the charges that we've already read from the gospel writers, right? So knowing what he knows about the Roman system, he's got a pretty good idea of what is coming. Boy, is he in for a surprise. One day he hears the shouts outside, the crowds, right? He's in prison, literally in the dark, but he hears the shouts outside, crucify him. Who must he assume they're speaking of? Right? He hears the sound of the guards coming down the hallway. The door opens up. They drag him out. What do you think he thinks is about to happen? They let his chains off, and they say, go, you're free. Put yourself in this man's position. What do you think is going through his mind? It's not over yet, though. The crowds are still shouting. Crucify him. But who now are they speaking of? Well, the same one they were before. But now he's beginning to understand, well, it clearly wasn't me. And he sees another man being paraded to a stone quarry outside the city walls, carrying a cross. From a justice standpoint, 
Whose cross is that? It's his. Barabbas knows that man is carrying my cross. He knows the chance are not for him, himself, but for that man. He knows that man is about to bear his guilt and his shame and his disgrace and his death. One has to wonder. We don't know. One has to wonder, though, the impact this had upon Barabbas. One has to wonder, perhaps, it, maybe it was even intentional that the gospel writers don't tell us. Maybe it's kind of like Jesus' parable so often. Let the reader decide. Let me put it this way. So here's the question. You're Barabbas. Do you know what he's done for you? You're Barabbas. Do you know what that man did for you? Christ has died for us, and so we are free. What would be the marks of a free man or woman? What would be the marks of a free man or woman? Let's come at it negatively, first of all. And by that, I mean one who's been freed by the blood of Jesus, okay? In that sense, what are the marks of a freed man or woman? And let me now come at it negatively. So here's a picture for you. Here's what it doesn't look like. So you're driving down the road, and you see the guys in the orange unis on the side of the road cleaning up stuff on the side of the road. There's another guy standing near a van or a bus with a shotgun, walkie-talkies, How free are these guys? Not much. Not much. Um, What's it look like from a spiritual standpoint, though, to not be free? Condemning of yourself? And others. Right? That's a mark of a man or a woman who is not spiritually free. Condemning, defensive, because of course you can't you can't have that. Joyless. No inclination whatsoever to read this book. Or spend time in prayer with the one who did that for you. Or to spend time with his people. So a condemning spirit, a defensive attitude, and a joylessness. Okay, what are the marks of the one who knows themselves to be free? So shift away from the side of the road. Let's go to the playground. Just running around just having a ball without, you know, just in the the best sense of the word, without a care in the world. That's a much better image. That's a much better image. 
That, friends, is a representation of spiritual freedom. What's it look like to be free in that sense? To be generous, because you know how much has been given to you, so how can you not be? To be merciful, oh my goodness, how, given how much mercy has been showered upon you, how can you not be? To be at peace, to not be eaten up with worry and anxiety, because of course, you know, how much does He love you? To be persevering, pressing on, because you know the hope that's in store for you. Now, friends, I'm not saying that if there are parts of that first list that make up your life and erraticness with the second part of the list that, you know, it's kind of a, a mishmash. I mean, that, that's me. I got stuff on the first list, and depending on how, what time of the day it is, how much caffeine's in my system, I'm not so good I'm on the second list. The point is not to say, this is a Christian and this is not. The point is, are we bearing the marks? Are we being true to who we are? Do we know, to the degree we know what that man has done for us, we will live as free. We will be free. That is the good news of Good Friday. Jesus has died for us, and so we are free. Jesus has died for us, and so we are free, and free indeed. Let's stand together and sing.